0: everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier. Today, our guest is Bob Finley, who is another amazing individual recommended to our podcast by Tanya LeBuick. And Bob, it's so great to have you on our podcast this afternoon. How are you? Um, wonderful. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on and joining and reminiscing about the Salt Lake 2002 games. Before we get to those games, though, why don't we talk a little bit about what you're doing these days? Why don't you tell us where you're joining us from? and. And what you're doing?
1: I am uh, still in Utah. I'm in uh, Syracuse, Utah, pretty close to where I lived during uh, the time of the games. Um, I did move away uh, after the games for a little while to California, and then back east to uh, New Jersey. But my uh, my wife uh, decided that she really loved it here after we had been here for the games, and uh, after some consideration, we decided to move back here about 12 years ago.
0: Oh, fantastic! So you're here. Syracuse, Utah's home mm-hmm. for our listeners who are not familiar where Syracuse is. It's up in uh, north of Salt Lake City. Yeah, it's about 20 miles, miles And uh, what do you do there?
1: Well, when we when I moved back here, I actually started working for a company in uh, Kaysville, Utah, which is really close by, who was one of the big suppliers uh, of ours for the games. Um, They had uh, uh, the gentleman who I'd worked with during the games had become a really close friend. And over the years, he kept bugging me that, hey, you wanted to get into the event business. And, you know, this is something we could partner up on and and maybe give a shot to. So, as I mentioned, I had moved away, uh, worked for a video game company in California for a while and then um, in a, for another company in uh, New Jersey, and then decided to move back here. And I had been with a company called Fusion Imaging for for about 10 years. Um, after, um, after the Games, working on large events, we did the New York City Marathon and uh, a couple of Super Bowls, uh, some different things like that in the intermittent time. Uh, and about two years ago, I decided to go uh, kind of out on my own. Um, and I've been a subcontractor for uh, stage and exhibit design since then.
0: Well, wow, that's fantastic. Are you working on any interesting projects now, particularly under this crazy <laughs> pandemic time?
1: Nothing too uh, too outrageous right now. Obviously, this past year's been a bit of a challenge, um, especially for the event industry because there's really nothing live going on. Um, we have kind of switched to doing the virtual event thing, which was a kind of a steep learning curve and and uh, trying to figure out how best to do that for our customers and and have been working on those sorts of things. Um, Really, since the since the pandemic started, uh, but it's it's been a bit slow. There's no question. It's really, uh, the pandemic has really hurt our industry.
0: I totally hear you. I'm in this industry and it's affording me time to do this podcast. I wouldn't have the time to do it under normal circumstances, but we are not living under normal circumstances. No, we're, still, so we're here reminiscing about Salt Lake, which <laughs> I enjoy quite a bit. So I appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah, no, this is a lot. Of, this is a lot of fun. I haven't I haven't thought uh, too much about the games in a, in, a, in a bit, so it's kind of nice to come back and tell some stories about the good old days.
0: All right. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing these stories that you've got for us today. Before we get to the stories of Salt Lake 2002 themselves, though wonder if you can paint us a picture of what you were doing, what life was like for you before Salt Lake, and how did you end up finding your way to the committee?
1: Sure. So uh, my wife and I are both from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, that's where I was uh, born and raised. Uh, I went to school at Temple University, studying architecture and design, um, and I worked for uh, a on nights and weekends. And during the summer, I worked for my father who owned a uh, golf and tennis retail store, um, from a, from a, a franchise store that was in Las Vegas, Nevada. And when I was done school, I was asked by the, the regional operations manager for the, the franchise organization. If I'd want to come out to, to, uh, Las Vegas and help them teach their new, um, Their new franchisee orientation class. So, this was, gosh, this was probably March, uh, and March in Philadelphia is pretty miserable cold, snowy, rainy, awful. Uh, So, I said, sure, I'll I'll go out and go out to Vegas for a couple of weeks and see what's up. Uh, So, hopped on a plane, really the first time I'd any traveled anywhere in my life, and uh, got off the plane, and it was 75 degrees and sunny. And uh, I was like, "Uh, yeah, I could do this. Uh, so I did that, uh, helped, uh, help them with that class and a few other things. And they had offered me a position with the organization, uh, doing some development, um, for some sports entertainment theme parks that they were working on. Um, and I worked, uh, worked there for a couple of years, uh, doing that as the creative director, and then um, I met a gentleman who who came on board for that company to k- kind of head up the new business development. And a year or so later, he was recommended uh, for a position at the Olympic Committee to be the director of image uh, from uh, one of the board members of um, of the the Olympic uh, Bid Committee, who was a uh, uh, former uh, commissioner of baseball, actually. And, uh, this gentleman took that job and went out there. And, um, about a month later, he gave me a call and said, Hey, I, I could really use you out here. Do you want to come out and, and do this? And, uh, I had to give it some pretty serious thought, uh, give up a very good job with a lot of opportunity for a, for a two year, uh, event that, uh, rewards you with unemployment when it's over. So it seemed, uh, it kind of was a tough sell, but, um, We uh, we we talked about it for a while and he convinced me it was uh, it was a good opportunity. And um, so I told my wife, hey, uh, we're going to move to Utah. Hope that's OK. Told her it's exactly like Las Vegas. So it wouldn't it wouldn't be any different. (laughs) Obviously, that's not true. Uh, But she was she was excited for the opportunity as well. Uh, She was uh, an elementary school teacher at the time. And uh so we moved up to uh to Salt Lake and jumped right in about two years prior to the game starting and uh, the rest is history.
0: Wow, that's a fascinating story. So you get here to Salt Lake
1: City, where do you kind of settle in? Well, we we didn't know a whole lot, uh obviously I didn't know any people other than the the my friend who was uh who had hired me. Uh he lived in bountiful Utah and uh introduced us to his realtor and said, they just um You know, we're just looking around for a house, help us out. And and, uh, uh, it turned out our price range didn't uh, didn't really include Salt Lake at that time. Uh, It was pretty expensive to live down there in the city. So he had showed us some outlying areas and we really loved it up here, up north, uh, you know, Farmington, Syracuse, Layton area and uh just found us a house um everything was happening really really quickly i was uh, already hitting the ground running left it to my wife to handle all of the moving and all the other stuff i probably could have helped but i told her i was too busy (laughs) to let her kind of take care of it and uh she found us a great place in layton uh, in layton utah and um and we moved in I have to ask, did she find a school teaching job? She did. She did almost almost right away Um, at that time. And I guess probably even now it's school teachers are are hard to come by. Um, It's a lot of kids out here and they're uh, they're always looking for for teachers. Um, And she's actually fantastic at what she does. And she had no trouble at all uh, uh, hooking on with a with a a magnet school um, in the uh, in the Leighton area.
0: Oh, that's wonderful that's fantastic now when you came to the organizing committee itself mm-hmm. what role did you end up playing there?
1: I was the manager for Look of Games. Uh, Look of Games is kind of a, a, an odd title for uh, all of the venue dress. Everything that you see on camera, the venues, the anything basically bigger than a bread box. We worked alongside the publication department who handled all the printed pieces. But everything that was, you know, we used to say bigger than a bread box, that was Look of Games. And that was what I was uh, originally uh, uh, slated to do when I moved here.
0: what does a look of the games manager do when he or she first arrives in the committee you come in you kind of assess the situation what's your what's your initial focus
1: well when i when i first uh, arrived here i kind of uh, they, they handed me basically the the program information from nagana which was the games prior to ours the winter games prior to ours said here's all the information that uh, that they did here's how they went about it here's their budget um, and, uh, I mean, we'll talk a little bit about it later, but obviously this was right after the kind of the scandal had happened, um, when I started. And so they said, here's, here's everything Nag- Nagano did, which isn't much. And if you cut that in about in half, and that's the budget you're going to have to work with. So it was, it was a bit of a rough start <laughs> t- determining how we were going to go about these things. And I had never done a, a, an Olympic games before I'd been involved in in events, but nothing at to this scale. Uh, so I was a little wide eyed at that point about how we were going to get through this this process and how it was going to work out. And it was uh, it was challenging, but uh, it turned out to be incredibly rewarding.
0: Well, I'm just curious. You know, you come in here, and basically the first thing you hear is, here's what Nagoto did. You got to do it with, or you got to do your thing with half the budget they spent uh-huh. and they didn't do much. Are you thinking to yourself, I
1: wonder if I can still go back to Vegas? <laughs> well, uh, uh, along those lines, the first the first meeting I attended um, when I arrived here was a press conference by the original uh, president of the organizing committee, Frank Joklik, uh basically saying we have this horrible scandal, uh, things are bad, I'm resigning, there may not be games. I, this is literally two days after I had I had shown up. We were basically closing on our house that day, and I'm I'm calling my wife saying, Hey, maybe don't unpack everything. <laughs> didn't want to be, didn't want to be specific, but I was like, what did I get myself into? This is going to be terrible. And, uh, it, it kind of it, it, it fixed itself up pretty quickly, but the first few hours and few days were pretty, were pretty stressful,
0: man. I cannot imagine what that was like. I mean, I joined in 2000. And so mm-hmm. all of that stuff had kind of been put behind us. It had come on board. You know, there was a renewed excitement about having the games here in Salt Lake City. And so I missed out on all of that. What was that like? You know, you you come in, you have this initial shock, maybe a little period of uncertainty. Well, Mm -hmm. who's going to be steering this ship? You have a regime change.
1: And right. uh, and then you march on. Yeah, like I said we, it was not even who was going to steer the ship. We were concerned whether it was going to be a ship at all. Um, they they had talked about uh, you know uh, possibilities of not even being able to host the games depending on what had uh, had transpired. Uh, I didn't know that much about it. I wasn't at that level where I was involved in those discussions. But uh, uh, from what was relayed to me was you know, these are the things that are going on. And we didn't, we didn't really get a lot of work done game wise at that point, because it was all this political infighting that we were trying to go through. Luckily, when, uh, when now Senator Romney uh, took over, it seemed very, very quickly that he kind of righted the ship and got everything going on its, uh, on its uh, final path and and it it went away really quickly. It didn't last very long, but I just, I do recall the first couple of months being really a stressful time as to, you know, are we actually going to do this or or what's going to happen? it did work itself out, thankfully. Yes, thankfully for all of us. Now, once things kind of
0: settled down, you're looking at the situation, you say, okay, well, here's what Nagano did. Mm -hmm. Every Olympic city wants to innovate, they want to do something a little bit different, unique, that represents their region. As you looked at it from a look of the games perspective, what kinds of ideas did you and your people come up with to say, okay, here's something that we can do that will uniquely represent Salt Lake City in the state of Utah.
1: Well, one of the one of the things that was always kind of communicated to me from from the, my boss was that it's going to work out. Everything's going to be fine. We're going to do we're going to do great things. Don't worry about the budget. The money will come. Uh, you know, when when things kind of settle down, the sponsors will come on board. So don't don't try to nickel and dime it. Let's get everything we need to do. Get yourself a, a schedule where you've got the must haves, the nice to haves and the and the and the want to, um, you know, things that you want to do that you think we're not going to have the opportunity to do. So we worked from that standpoint from the very beginning to to do uh, the kind of the grandest things we could come up with. Um, and uh, uh, worked forward, knowing or hoping in mind that that those things were going to come to pass if we could sell them uh, to the to the the uppity ups that uh, you know these things were going to be really important. Um, we always felt that you know visually that's what you see on TV, other than the athletes and the performance, which is certainly the star of the show. Kind of the grandeur of the 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 set. Uh, design and um, and graphics around the city and the venues was going to be really, really important. And uh, we were able to convince uh, uh, most of the folks that it was very important and and uh, so financially it worked out at the end. they They saw the importance of it and we got the we got the budget that we needed
0: Well, what were some of the, I don't know, more funny or entertaining or hilarious things that happened during your tenure here at the organizing committee?
1: Well, as, um, as I mentioned, the, the, when I started, the, that was a very, uh, peculiar situation. I, I don't know if I'd call it funny. I, I laughed at times because it was kind of the only other choice that I had was to, uh, to kind of, uh, you know, to get through the stressful period, you just kind of laugh and and move forward. Um, one of the uh, one of the things that I thought was really funny was when uh, we got closer to the game's time. It was uh, right towards the end of two thousand and one, and the torch relay had. Uh, had hit the ground in the United States on the East coast and it was working its way towards Salt Lake city. Um, I was asked if I wouldn't mind, uh, going out and being, I guess what they would call the MC for the torch relay for a couple of days. You go out to, uh, the, the host cities for where the torch comes in and they set up a stage and they have some entertainment and somebody gives a speech that somebody ended up being me, uh, welcoming the torch to that particular place. And, um, Uh, So I said, yeah, that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. I'll I'll give that a whirl. So I went out, um, and I was in, uh, West Virginia, Washington, DC, and then up into Pittsburgh. Um, and we started in, um, we started in Washington, DC. And again, this was right after 9-11. Um, and there were torch runners, um, at the Pentagon, um, when uh, I mean there was still it was still a, a construction site after the after the uh, the plane crash, and um, so there was some, uh, some pretty amazing things going on as as that torch went through. I was I was stunned by the the torch relay crew. Um, when I got there, we we stopped probably at eight o'clock at night, went in eight, you climbed in one side of your bed, you rolled out the other side, you got up and you made pretend you'd slept that night. Um, and I had been doing that for two or three days and I was shot. Um, and I had realized that these people had been doing this for months. They had literally been been on a schedule that I couldn't even imagine um, the way that they were working because they there just wasn't any time you were, you were running the torch all day long, uh, getting on a plane or driving to the next city, uh, maybe stopping in a hotel every couple of days if you could. Um, so that was a pretty incredible, incredible experience for me to see how they, uh, they kind of went through that. Now the, the director of the torch relay had some slots open in some, uh, unusual times or unusual places. And he asked me if I would, if I'd want to run the torch. So of course I was thrilled for the opportunity. Uh, and that opportunity came in West Virginia, um, in some suburb town at about 5am in the morning, uh, where there was no one. <laughs> you see the, uh, the pictures of people running the torch with, uh, with like You know, sidelines of of adoring uh, people enjoying the seeing the Twitch relay go by. That wasn't quite my experience, um, because I was again. I'm I'm out there in the freezing cold, five o'clock in the morning, and some. A uh, little backwoods town in West Virginia, and I'm running the torch, and there was one, saw one other gentleman on the street uh, as we went through with what looks like a presidential motorcade with the uh, the torch, the truck that carries the cauldron, the the chase vehicles, the police on motorcycles. So a very grandiose uh, uh, party going down the street while of no people. And I got to run the torch for uh, two-tenths of a mile, which is a lot longer than you think it is when you're out of shape. Um, so I, I remember doing that, and it was, it was, uh, it was a fun time. It was, it was amazing for me individually, and the fact that there was no one really around kind of even made it a little bit more special. It was very poignant, um, and, uh, and I have really fond memories of that. And, and thankfully, after that, I escaped and said, oh, i got to go back to work <laughs> because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the schedule they kept, kept working on. So uh, after West Virginia, I flew back home and uh, tried to get the games going.
0: Well, I love the torch. We've had several people talk about the torch on our podcast, and the memories are great. But I have to ask you: you mentioned that you were asked to MC. How did you score this assignment? How did people know? Hey, you know what? Bob has some skills here. He could do the thing.
1: Uh, it's it's a little less glamorous than maybe I've made it out to um, uh, Basically. Uh, I think it's one of those things where they they try to get someone uh, of notoriety that people might notice just to to go up on the stage and say, "Hey, welcome to Pittsburgh. Uh, thanks for coming. The torch is going to be here any minute. And we're going to have a little party. And you give a little speech. It's it's not that exciting. I think the I think the issue is at that, that late time there there weren't really a lot of people available. So um, I, I kind of got the got the offer as as a last guy available kind of a thing. It wasn't exactly like uh, like they were clamoring to get to me.
0: I don't know. I think you're being a little bit humble. I mean, I I was back in the main offices there in the Wells Fargo building. And, uh, you know, I was just hounding people in functional areas to get their volunteers scheduled. Mm-hmm. So I would have welcomed the opportunity to go out on the torch relay and do something like that. I think it's a fantastic thing. I, I think you're underselling it a little bit. <laughs>
1: It was fun. It was, it was a little terrifying, but it was fun. They, they gave you a piece of paper with the speech on it. And, uh, you could tell it had been the same piece of paper that they've used for the whole relay. Cause a city name would be on there and scratched out. And that's all anybody would tell you is don't forget to say the right city. Don't forget to say the right city. If you say the wrong city, they're going to boo you. <laughs> so that's what I was concerned about. Most was making sure I said, welcome to, and, uh, got the right location, uh, because they were moving around so much. I, most people, I don't, I'm not even sure if they knew where they were at that point. Uh, you just, set up and and go about your business and and you don't even know what state you're in when you haven't slept in six months
0: yeah and, and like you say i have to give major props to the people that did the torch relay because those were really long hours and days i think we had jill beckstead now jill lamping on yeah. she talked about how she drove twenty five thousand miles in a car yeah. you know it was just a humongous of work to to plan and execute that torch relay operation. And so my hat's off to everybody you included who helped make it possible.
1: Yeah. I wrote in, in the, uh, the pace car with Jill the few days I was out there and I was pretty sure she was asleep the whole time she was driving. Uh, I think they learned how to kind of nap in between, uh, activities. Like when you stop at a red light, you take a little snooze. Uh, it was a little, a little scary, but, uh, yeah, they, they're amazing, an amazing group and they did a phenomenal job. Oh, she she had all kinds of techniques to try to stay
0: awake, you know, wearing rubber bands on her wrist and snapping them to kind of wake her up or pinching herself or whatever it was to to try to stay awake. Uh, You know, that's that's a lot of work. Okay, so you do the torch relay, Mm -hmm. uh, you come back, you finalize your preparations. So tell me what the work is like in the lead up to and during the games themselves.
1: Well, right about, I guess probably three months prior to the games, we had uh, kind of all separated out into our functional areas. And we had um, for the look team, we had uh, uh, acquired a triple wide trailer down by our warehouse because we were. We were uh, bringing in, I mean, tons of graphics, literally thousands of pounds of graphics. So we had to have uh, our own warehouse and uh, we got a, uh, uh, again, a triple wide trailer down to uh, right at the warehouse site. So we were all on site to be able to kind of sort through all these things and figure out where they're going and, and how to get them there. Um, again, after the 9-11, the security had gotten so much tighter, it, it became really difficult to get in and out of venues and the scheduling um, that, uh, that you had to do to, to pull everything off really got to be, got to be challenging. Uh, you had mentioned Tanya Lebuick. She was our, uh, she was kind of our logistics manager and she did a fantastic job of, of getting us in and out of the venues when we needed to be, which, uh, you know, it, it turned out to always be two, three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> it's never, never any reasonable time during the day. So we were on a, we were on a pretty schedule, a crazy schedule ourselves at that time.
0: And what about during games time? Were you at a specific venue or are you just kind of roving around, uh, fixing issues at venues, doing whatever needed to be done?
1: Yeah, we had sort of a maintenance schedule after we had the major install, which was uh, obviously the biggest part of our operation. The the, the couple of weeks leading up to the games, we were. working to get, uh, uh, everything installed and up and ready to go. And then we had, we had a maintenance schedule that we had put together where everyone was out at their individual venues. Um, I was kind of overseeing the process. Um, And uh, making sure we had a we had a pretty nasty windstorm the night right before opening ceremony, which uh, did wreak some havoc on our graphics. Uh, Luckily, we had a great team of installation uh, professionals that were uh, that were on the ground that were able to fix things relatively quickly. Um, But, um, yeah, getting all the stuff up was was a bit of a challenge. Um, Getting into the venues was a challenge, but uh, it, it worked out pretty well. I have to ask.
0: People in this kind of environment, they can either fold under this pressure. You mentioned getting up <laughs> two, three o'clock in the morning and going and doing all of these things. Not everybody thinks that's a great career thing to do, right? Like, oh, man, I got to get up at two or three o'clock in the morning and they could complain all day long. Or you can just, you know, kind of shrug your shoulders or you can say, you know what, let's get this done. Mm-hmm. So. How did you maintain the motivation to to spend all the time and energy to get this working right and not fold under the
1: pressure? I, one of the things that obviously made it a, a lot easier was knowing that there's an end date, that this this is going to happen on this date, uh, whether you're ready or not. Um, and then it's going to be over. Um, so you knew the pain was going to be short lived. Uh, also we had just a, a fantastic team of, of people that are they're literally like family to me uh, since that time. And we got along so well. We were pretty much living in that trailer. Um, all hours of the night, all hours of the day, cots if you needed to uh, you know, catch a couple hours of sleep. I spent more time with them than I did with than my own family, obviously, for, for probably six months leading up to the games. And uh, I, I think we took turns. Um, I would be absolutely terrified and thinking this is going to be such a disaster and it's not going to work out, and someone would uh, grab me and say, it's going to be fine we're we're good we're in good shape it's going to be all right and i'm like are they lying (laughs) and then somebody else would have a breakdown and i would tell them it's going to be fine it's going to be great and i knew i was lying (laughs) because i wasn't sure we were going to pull it off but we all kind of took turns uh taking the trip up the panic pole as we called it so you talk about
0: living in the triple wide trailer with your look at the games family yeah it sounds like a uh, an MTV real world, a Big Brother kind of episode kind of thing, a reality television thing. What was that like living? Well, not really living, but, you know, working these very, very long hours mm-hmm. in this
1: triple wide trailer. It it was like a sitcom. It was it was uh, comedy. Um Uh, there were, I think there were 17 of us at that time of, uh, graphic designers and logistics people and architects, um, all working together to kind of pull this thing together. And, um, again, fantastic group of people. I mean, you work there. I, I have not since uh, had the pleasure of working with a more talented group of individuals, um, than I did at the games. And, um, they kept us laughing. They kept us crying. Um, Everybody kind of had everybody's back, which I think was the most important thing, because like you said, there were times where you just didn't think you were going to be able to make it. And and the pressure was going to was going to get to you and somebody would pick you up and then the next day it would be your turn to pick somebody else up. And uh, we just kind of worked through that, knowing it was all going to come to an end. Uh, you know, wishing it would come to an end some days. And then then when it finally did come to an end, obviously the, the sadness of of thinking, wow, now we're gonna all go our separate ways, just when we we feel like we've we've got this team together where we could do anything and then you're you you all go your separate ways. And it's it's really kind of a bittersweet at that point.
0: It totally is. And many people have shared that same feeling. You know, it was it was bittersweet. It was a relief that it was over at the same time. You knew that there was a chapter of your life that just closed and so why don't you dive into that just a little bit more you know first of all when did that chapter end Um, was it right after the paralympic games ended did you hang on a little bit more to kind of handle all of the the bump out the tear down Mm -hmm. uh, of everything and then what did you learn from your experience there in the Salt Lake 2002 Organizing Committee that then helped you as you went on to the next part of your life.
1: Well, actually, the uh, for your first question, the uh, it ended for me actually quite a long time after the the games. I had been asked to stay on and kind of manage part of the legacy projects. Um, we had done um, obviously the uh, the Cauldron Park at the university, where we relocated the the Olympic Cauldron and built the uh, the theater there, and then also the um, the Utah um, Olympic uh, Museum up in uh, Park City up by the uh, the ski jump. So those projects went on for uh, over a year after the games uh, so I had stuck around um to do that, and it was kind of eerie because most of the people did move on. Uh, we were still in the uh, in the Wells Fargo building there for a little while uh, with a with a very small skeleton crew, um, and it was it really seemed anticlimactic after the games had ended that you're still going in with this little group of people. But then we kind of picked it up a little bit, and uh, like I said, it took about a year to get those projects ready to go. We had intended on finishing the. Uh, the cauldron park for the, the one year anniversary celebration that was put together. I didn't quite make that goal. It, it weather became a pretty big issue, but we didn't quite get the cauldron relocated and all that in a year. So it's about a year and a half before, before I finally got my, uh, my release papers. It was, uh, it was a very uh, interesting and crazy time. Uh, as far as gosh, what I learned um you know the old adage where uh, people say to just relax. Nobody else knows what they're doing either. There, there's some of that. There's some truth to that. In that, uh, when I when I got to the Olympic Committee, I was meeting all of these people, and my my first thoughts were, I don't belong here. These people are, these are the best. The best of the best and I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm here. This is going to be a terrible experience. I, I had a lot of anxiety. Um, but I got to realize that a lot of the people hadn't been through something uh, quite like that before either. And um, that we kind of all, again, pulled together as a group and and held each other up and uh, and worked as a team. To kind of uh, achieve all those goals, and that you, you'd work with some of the best people in the industry, but they would be more than willing to take the time to help you and to show you what needed to be done. And um, I, I thought there'd be a lot more egos. Um, and I was very pleasantly surprised that that wasn't the case, that everyone there was so incredibly accepting and willing to work with you, however, whatever you needed, whenever you needed it, almost universally.
0: I totally agree. It was really a place at least it was in my little area. It was a place without without egos. So although I did share some of the uh, similar experiences that you did when it came to working with the people, I must confess that I missed out on the experience of working in the triple wide trailer. I really <laughs> wish I would have had that experience.
1: It was it was very interesting. I mean we we kind of got shoved into this little box and again you're like a family we're spending all of our time together, we're really having all our meals together, sometimes we're sleeping at the same time as other people are working. It's it's you're you're going through all these 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 amazing new experiences and if there if there'd have been any one person that that made things Difficult. It would have really been a problem, and uh, because all of your all of your emotions, I think, are heightened when you get to that point and you realize, all right, this is going to happen now. You've been preparing for two years. This is going to go off. Three and a half billion people are going to watch this. If you screw up, everybody's going to know. Uh, And everybody's in the same boat. Everybody, you could tell everybody has that same anxiety. Uh, There's nobody that's kind of above thinking it doesn't affect them. And uh, so you've got all these people and they're, they're all really genuinely pulling for everyone else to be successful. And I, I think that's what the most amazing part was, uh, me and the team get together pretty much every year, uh, to have dinner somewhere, something just to get together and reminisce and tell stories. And, and, uh, it's, it's funny when you get together with your, with your old crew, it feels like you're back there again. You're, you're, you're telling stories and you're remembering things that you hadn't thought about in in a decade. And uh, it feels like you're just, you're back on the job again.
0: You've got to give us a little peek into these yearly dinners. You get together, you tell the stories. What? if, if there is one, what is the one story that gets repeated that everybody talks about every single time?
1: <laughs> I, I don't even know if, if I could tell you uh, a lot of the things we talk about, uh, but you know how it is. It's, um, <laughs> certain people that, that, uh, made your lives difficult at the time that you, you, uh, vow eternal vengeance on, <laughs> um, not nothing really that bad. We, um, we would always get together and just have some great laughs. We had, um, during the games, we had um, uh, a budget to to do departmental activities uh, every now and again. We'd come up with some different things to do, uh, some team building exercises. And one year we had, um, uh, it was set up for us to go to a yurt a uh one of those outdoor tent on the side of a mountain in the middle of the night for for dinner uh, was up in um, I think it was up in deer valley that we went to and um we had all gone out um, we had to, you had to snowshoe to get there you had to either cross country ski or snowshoe to get to this uh, to get to this yurt to have dinner and um, so we all went up there and about four or five people actually made it to the tent and we realized everyone else had dropped off somewhere along the way Uh, so we spent the rest of the night combing through the forest in the in the frigid weather uh trying to find people who would gotten lost snowshoeing excuse me or trying to cross country ski out to this this remote little location where we all went to, to have dinner um so that was that was a pretty interesting time
0: well, was everyone recovered? We didn't lose. I, I,
1: I don't think we lost anyone. Uh, I, I don't know if everyone made it actually for the dinner, but uh, uh, the following Monday, everybody showed up back at work. So I think we did okay. <laughs>
0: That's good. I hope there wasn't too much finger pointing like, uh. It was your idea to do this, your thing,
1: really? Actually, no, no. It was it was definitely not my idea. I would have not known. Uh, I'm a city boy from Philadelphia. Um, I, I still am a, a fish out of water in Utah uh, with all the outdoorsiness that people do. Um, and someone recommended it, and I, everyone seemed to think it sounded like fun. So we were like, sure, let's we'll give it a try. I didn't know that we might lose team members over it, but uh, we gave it a whirl, and it, it ended up being a lot of fun. Are you telling so me you didn't do- take
0: snowshoeing courses there at Temple yeah. University?
1: <laughs> no, there was no snowshoeing, no skiing, anything of that uh, at nature at all.
0: Oh, my goodness. Wow. Well, this storytelling time has been a lot of fun. But before we go to that final segment, anything else, any other stories on your list that you want oh. to share with us before we before we conclude?
1: Yeah, the one thing that was really interesting was um, as the games got really close um, about – about a month prior, uh, one of our responsibilities was also the, the cauldron, uh, the design and the development of the cauldron. Uh, so as, as the graphic portion of our program began to really get finalized and we were out purchasing, uh, I kind of, uh, diverted my attentions almost specifically to the cauldron. Uh, we were working with a company, uh, called wet design out of, uh, California who had engineered, uh, the, the piece here in Utah. And, um, we had, uh, um, put it on the back of a of a semi trailer and driven it down to Rice-Eccles Stadium and we're getting it installed. And um, one of the things that my boss was concerned about was the having the reveal of this be uh, be special uh, that it not be seen prior to. So he had the bright idea that we would do the cauldron tests at 3 a.m uh, pretty much every other day. So I had to get up about 2 a.m. for, to make the 45 minute drive down to, down to Rice stadium, where we would stand in the frigid, cold, empty stadium, uh, To light the cauldron, to to do the test, um, to do the tests to make sure that it worked, Um, and uh, (laughs) I remember thinking uh, this was the worst idea anyone's ever had. Uh, I I get no sleep as it is, and you've you've decided that we're going to do this at 3 a.m. so that the news media doesn't see the cauldron burning. And I I think we got away with it. I don't recall them ever seeing any footage of the of the cauldron tests prior to uh, prior to uh, opening ceremony. So it worked out, but it almost killed me. Well, you mentioned that, you know, this
0: cauldron, it reminds me uh, just a few moments ago, you talked about this project that you worked on after the games concluded. Now the stadium there at Rice Eccles is expanding. Mm -hmm. What happens to the cauldron?
1: We're not sure. Um, I, I have not heard what the what the. The, the the plan is really um, – they were the, – the contract that we had with the university was for 10 years uh, that they had to keep uh, and maintain the, the park. We had given them an endowment and they uh, agreed to take care of it for 10 years. So, yeah, now they're going to close in that entire south end of the stadium and the cauldron is going to be moved. Um, it, obviously, it's a fairly expensive process to uh, to take it and put it somewhere. You need the IOC's uh, approval of the final location and and uh, what what's going to. Be done with the cauldron. So, as uh, the last I heard, there has been no decision about what's going to happen with that when they when they originally take it out of there. It's it's kind of sad. I, I um I, I enjoy it. It's it's kind of neat to drive by it every now and again and look up and it's still there. But uh, but I can understand. Twenty years later, they're ready to uh, they're ready to move on. And uh, gosh, hopefully we're going to get the games back here in another ten years or so. So uh, somebody help be putting a new cauldron up somewhere.
0: Yeah. Who knows? And that cauldron will need to be designed. So Absolutely. maybe there's an opportunity to uh, to design another cauldron here for the could game.
1: Be. I, I remember after the game saying never again, I'll, I'll never do this again, that it was a great experience. But uh, uh, no, thank you. Um, but I don't know, 20, almost 20 years later, I, I, I bet somebody could talk me into doing it again. I'm certainly not as young in the spry as I was back then. So uh, I would need a lot more help, But uh, but I'd still give it a try, I think. Yeah, I'm certainly
0: not young or spry. I don't think I've ever been spry in my entire life. However, I would welcome the opportunity to help take well, uh, 1 it's more 20 time.
1: years ago we can we can uh, embellish history any way we want, right? Well, this becomes the record. I mean,
0: <laughs> the conversation that we're having right now. So, so it is what it is, as my daughter Absolutely. would say. Anything else before we wrap up?
1: Ah, gosh, I don't think so. That probably covers it.
0: Okay, fantastic. We'll get to the final segment now. Mm -hmm. The first question for you is a music question. Is there a particular song, a group, a musical group, an artist that takes you right back to Salt Lake 2002 anytime you hear their music?
1: Um... Not so much a group. There was a, when when we were uh, developing kind of the 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 uh, the visual identity and the theme for the games. Uh, there was a song from uh, the movie Gladiator that was um, uh, "Now We Are Free," I believe it's called, and it was it was what we used in the uh, the torch relay video, um, the 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 pre uh, pre tour relay, you know, kind of hype video that we put together. And it's a beautiful piece of music, uh, sung by Lisa Girard, I believe. Um, and, um, we, uh, we were trying to get the rights to utilize that for the, for the, the actual video, but it was some, some ridiculous amount of money to get the rights to, to use, uh, you know, uh, a movie soundtrack like that. So we had some, uh, some music made in, in that theme kind of along the thematically the same sort of music, but that, that song always kind of brings me back and, uh, uh brings a bit of a tear to my eye. <laughs> All right. The movie Gladiator. We'll find that. We'll put it on the Spotify
0: playlist. We have a playlist on Spotify called Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective. Same name as the podcast. Now let's go to the next question for you. I'm a huge food lover, so that's why I'm asking this question. When you worked there in Salt Lake or when you were living up there in Layton, Mm -hmm. Uh, Was there a particular restaurant that you like to go to uh, during your time there in the Salt Lake Organizing Committee?
1: I would say it would be the, um, gosh, I can't, I can't remember the name of it now. It was the Something Grill uh, up by the university. It was in an old firehouse. It would be the Porcupine Grill? No, not the Porcupine Grill there's market street grill market there's, street there's grill, Market yes, a street yes. Roiler and a market street grill one of them was up by the right up right. by uh, right. university i don't know if it's there anymore but uh, every time we were at rice eccles for um for uh uh um, ceremonies review previews things to do with the cauldron we would always stop as a group uh off at the uh off at the Market Street Grill and get a, a bowl of clam chowder and and a loaf of bread and uh, just g- good times, really good memories of of uh, mainly the people that that you know you spend so much time with.
0: Well, I can eat that clam chowder and that bread all day long. Oh, I absolutely love that. I think it's delicious. So I'm super happy to add that to our restaurant map. We've got a map hey, on well, the website. I mean, it's Are we, anymore, which is really sad. Oh but there are other market street locations so we will throw that throw that. Oh okay. Yeah. Um, it's still around in a mm-hmm. few places and uh, and so we'll definitely add a market street onto the map. All right. Now let's get to our final final question for you today, Bob. Mm-hmm. What is your favorite games memory, your goosebump moment, the one that just makes you feel all warm and fuzzy inside anytime you remember it?
1: well, as as I mentioned, i was uh, I was pretty intimately involved with the development of the cauldron, uh, from its initial concepts to uh, the engineering through some ideas that's crazy ideas that we had to actually make it out of ice at one point um, that we tried and tested um, uh, flying out to California every other week to work with wet design to develop uh, and get this this whole thing together. and realizing that, you were going to get one shot at this. That that if it didn't light, um, everybody was going to know uh, that there was no do overs. Um, it was a one shot deal. Uh, luckily, the the gentleman, the, the main uh, gentleman I worked through, his name was Jim Doyle, at uh, Wet Design, was this fantastic engineer who talked us out of every bad idea we came up with, um, decided that every moving part was going to be a guy hanging onto a rope. It wasn't going to be a motor or anything electronic because he said that uh, Murphy's law would get us. Uh, it'll work every time you test it and then it won't work the day of ceremonies. So, uh, I, I was very excited, uh, knowing that that was going to happen. And then, um, my boss, uh, was kind enough to give my wife and I tickets to, to attend opening ceremony, which was a surprise to me. I didn't think I was going to get that opportunity. Um, and we went and, um, obviously the, it was, the whole thing was magical, uh, to, to see this all come to a culmination after, after all that years of work. But when the, when the cauldron was lit by the, by the 1980, uh, hockey team, um, I didn't even realize how much, I guess, stress and, and anxiety I had until that moment. And yeah, I did, I kind of lost it at that point. I, uh, I had a bit of a breakdown, uh, when, uh, when I saw the the thing light for the first time. And, um, it was just, uh, incredible, again, a culmination of all the hard work, uh, realizing that it, it happened. We made it actually, we made it happen. Uh, it, it had kind of almost felt like a, like a dream prior to that, that, we're doing all this but is it really going to be is it really going to take place um and then when it when the cauldron lit i uh yeah that was for me that was the biggest moment
0: well it's wonderful i love the design of the cauldron i have the design of the cauldron on the cover art for this podcast mm-hmm. i absolutely think it's amazing and this may seem a little bit anticlimactic but i actually want to ask a follow-up question which is how, how did you settle on this final design engineering aside and feasibility mm-hmm. aside how did you settle on this final design? Who makes the final decision? Who ultimately signs off and says, "Okay, you've got these various designs concepts. This is the one we're going to go with." Mm-hmm.
1: Well, obviously, for something as iconic as the cauldron, uh, that that went right up to the top. That was uh, that was Senator Romney's decision. Uh, him and uh, Fraser Bullock, uh, the two guys at the top of the pyramid. Um, we had presented uh, a number of of concepts. Um, and I can't take credit really for any of the, of the design work that, that, uh, we had gotten uh, a couple of bids from companies with design concepts that were fantastic. And then obviously a couple from, uh, wet design, including, uh, what was close to what we uh, finally came up with. Um, uh, we worked on it for a couple of months, uh, to kind of fit it in as much as we could thematically to the rest of the things that were going on. Um, my boss, Scott Givens and I, uh, kind of daily, had, had the that charge and then we would run it up to uh, uh, to make presentations to uh, mitt and Fraser. Um and then uh, finally we we tweaked it enough and they said this is the one this is the this is the one that we feel really speaks to what we're trying to communicate and uh, they made that final decision the Ic signed off on it but they really didn't have much uh much involvement in it and I think they were happy with it right from the beginning so it worked out really well all right, wonderful, and I hope to get Scott on here too. I've had an email exchange with
0: him, and and uh, he was kind of busy getting some proposal done, but he's always uh, getting some proposal done.
1: <laughs> yes, he's like the Howard Hughes of the event world. He's tough. He's tough to get a hold of, but if if you do, it'll be it'd be worth your time. He's absolutely. So I'm looking forward to that. He's an yeah. evil genius. We call him <laughs> mainly genius, a little bit evil.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, perfectly said. All right, Bob. Uh, This has been a great hour for me. I've really, really had a lot of fun, enjoyed uh, listening to all of your memories, particularly about the Cauldron. I think it's very, very touching and inspirational. If people want to connect with you, uh, learn more about the work that you're doing in this event space, or they just want to share some memories of Salt Lake 2002, what's Mm -hmm. the best way for them to contact you?
1: Uh, Probably just through my website at moreardesign.com moreardesign.com Okay,
0: listeners, that. that's where you go, moreardesign.com Thank that's you it. again. I appreciate it. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast. We'll catch you again soon. Bob, thanks so
1: much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a good time.